Welcome to Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and Daniel Hogan is in the studio. We're really happy to be here uh, once again on a beautiful fall day now. Uh, How time flies in Montana. Beautiful, open, clear skies. We've had a lot of smoke, a lot of fires, so quite some refreshing fall days here that we're getting to experience. I'd like to remind you that you can email us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Today, our guest is Natasha Radcliffe Thomas. She is a professor at the British School of Fashion. And uh, she's got a lot of projects, and her key focus is marketing and sustainable business. So in just a moment, she will join us and tell us all about what she is up to. This is Heartstock. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Thank you so much for listening. Today, our guest is Natasha Radcliffe Thomas, and she is with the British School of Fashion. Hi, Natasha. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Please tell our listeners just a little bit about what your focus is there and all the activities. I know that you do some case studies as well as instruction, and I'm really excited to hear about all the activities and efforts to bring sustainability to, well, business and fashion in general. Great. Yeah, sure. Thank you. So I'm a professor of marketing and sustainable business, and I'm based at the British School of Fashion, which is uh, at GCU London. And this is a position I took up about two years ago. It's a new position to really push um, the sustainability agenda across the kind of business, marketing and management side of the fashion industry. So um, we're lucky enough to have a campus in Glasgow, in London and in New York. So we're also really interested in those kind of international conversations about fashion, because fashion, as you know, is a really global industry. So one of the main areas that I've been working on in the last couple of years is to develop kind of teaching resources um, and included in that case studies, looking at different models for um, fashion business. And um, I know that, you know, you're interested in alternative sort of business models like social enterprise. And one of the things um, that I got interested in this area of work a few years ago was looking at that kind of business case for a social enterprise. So what we're really doing at the British School of Fashion is we're asking students to take a kind of holistic view of fashion, to think about, uh, you know, not just the financials, but to look at social impact and to look at the sort of environmental impact and kind of moving away from kind of minimizing harm and actually trying to look for really positive and collaborative solutions. So sort of in a nutshell, that's the sort of areas that we're interested in. Mm-hmm. And you have been all over our planet, and I'm hoping you can share with us a little bit about your journey. You know, what led you to where you are today? I know you've you've taught in China and the United States, and share with our listeners yeah, just absolutely. a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm from London, um, and I worked, you know, in London in the early part of my career. 
um, as a designer actually in luxury children's wear and then started working in education after that. I was really interested always in sort of global education. And in the early 2000s, I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to live and work in Hong Kong and spend a lot of time um, both in Hong Kong, but on the mainland. And I was teaching, you know, fashion design then, a little bit of fashion marketing. Um, but living out in Asia, my eyes really got open to a lot of different aspects around sustainability. I mean, as as you'll be aware, there's a lot of production that comes out of China and a lot of those factories are in the south of China. And so the pollution from those factories is the air that you're breathing in Hong Kong. It's very noticeable when the factories close down for a break that the air clears. Probably, you know, listeners can can be familiar with that as what's happened in the in the recent lockdown when the aeroplanes stop flying and the, the skies become clear. Um, but also, I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to visit not only factories but also um, sort of craftspeople working in China, doing more sort of hand skills and really quality work. So I've got a real sort of firsthand insights into both negative kind of impacts of, of fashion and more positive and, you know, really the, the creativity of fashion. Another aspect when I was living in Hong Kong that I was very interested in, as I said, I'm a maker, was tailoring and the local tailoring um, industry. And that really was being devastated by the competition of mass production. And so, you know, it's one of the, the things that we have, one of the challenges we have in fashion is losing the kind of personal small business, um, you know, good employment. So in Hong Kong, what was happening really is, is a, lot of the, a lot of the tailors were becoming sort of underemployed. They didn't have enough work to do when they were working, you know, in, in not great circumstances. So again, as part of my research, um, I worked and looked into a social enterprise tailors that was kind of helping tailors by bringing them together, giving them decent work, sort of negotiating, um, you know, good wages and having a really high quality tailoring business based as a social enterprise. So that's just one of the things that really kind of um, opened my eyes to the fact that you can have kind of business for good, more purposeful business. Um, in 2010, I moved to the States and I was living in Buffalo in New York State. And I spent a lot of time, you know, in that area and then also down in kind of New York City. And you could see similar to in the UK, how a lot of the um, sort of domestic production has really been lost, how, again, you lose the skills, you lose the small production because things have, you know, been internationalized and, and sent offshore. But I could see there, as we were having in the UK now, I suppose the seeds of the industry trying to regrow and try to get that local production back again and try to sort of value the skills. So I think all of these types of things kind of came together. And so when I moved back to uh, London, which was in uh, 2012, I really made it my purpose. I thought if I'm going to be involved in fashion education, I need it to be focusing on responsible business. I need it to be focusing on the positive aspects of fashion. And so one of the ways in which I did that was thinking about um, sharing the lessons of these kind of more positive models through case studies. And I became involved in, in writing case studies um, with the case center. I wrote a case study on Tom's. Um, with a, a colleague of mine, Anna, um, and then also I started working with Bloomsbury Fashion Business and uh, developed a series of case studies around 
people like Stella McCartney, who's one of the kind of pioneers in sustainability and businesses like Patagonia that are offering kind of alternate models. And I worked with colleagues, um, including kind of Bill and Rosemary uh, at the London College of Fashion, where I was then to develop those kind of teaching case studies. Um, and so all of that kind of experience, I guess, has come together in my latest role at the British School of Fashion, where one of the first things I did in, in joining um, the school is to reach out to a lot of sort of experts in the area of sustainability and responsible business. People like the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, who, as you know, are really key in terms of circular economy and just start to get really, really educate myself on a lot of the latest thinking so that I could help develop more kind of courses. And one of the courses that I worked on is called Sustainable Luxury. And it's really looking at the, the positive impact that the luxury industry can have in terms of supporting good work, quality products, um, and et cetera. Were you always in love with fashion? Who early on were your influences that got you excited about doing this work? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I've always been really aware of the power of image. I've always enjoyed clothes and fashion. Um, when I was a teenager, like many of us, I was really into music and quite often music and fashion go hand in hand. I loved the 1960s. So I was very interested. I used to buy lots of you know thrift store clothes that were kind of vintage. And then I would I, I got into making clothes because I wanted to make the kind of clothes that I wanted to wear that I could see in kind of old movies and fashion magazines. So I used to, I mean, I loved, I still do, people like Twiggy, the <laughs> model in the 60s. Yeah. I loved Mary Quant, the British designer. Um, and so that was really the way that I got into fashion was, I suppose, through my own creative expression. And I started making before I kind of learned to sew and I was quite self-taught and I used to love the fact that you could just get a piece of fabric and within an afternoon transform it into something three-dimensional you could be going out wearing it that evening I think it helped that when, um, when I was young I was very skinny so it's easier to make clothes if you're like a beanpole um, <laughs> don't need too much fitting <laughs> but then I also got fascinated in the skills of making and anyone who's done anything with your hands, you know, you know how kind of um, how much pleasure you can get from that and how you know therapeutic can be, how grounding it can be. So I really kind of enjoyed that. And then later on, as I, I you know, worked as a, I used to do dressmaking, I used to make wedding dresses and then I had a couple of, um, you know, businesses. But I think I've always really liked um, I suppose I've loved I like color. I like cut. I'm always inspired by people. You know, if you think of someone like Charles James draping these beautiful kind of creations, um, and I and I suppose people like John Galliano for for Dior back in the day, I always used to love the kind of whole showmanship as well of those kind of fashion creations, and that kind of fantasy side of fashion. So that's something I think that. I've talked about this before, you know, when I was first interested in fashion, it was all about the pleasure, the glamour, the, the, the look. And more recently, most of the stories about fashion are extremely negative and really challenging. And I don't want to ignore those, but I'd love for us to be able to get a little bit back to, to more of the pleasure side of fashion and, and celebrating the creativity where we can. And you said you grew up there in London. What was that like? And what influences? I mean, you know, I always wonder because we've got these big fashion centers, New York and London and, of course, Paris. So what was London like and the influences that you received there? 
Yeah, great question. I mean, London is definitely one of the key fashion cities. And I think, you know, the, London has a reputation of being, I think, quite a young fashion city. It's very accepting of difference. And I think that's one of the things that I love about London. We're extremely multicultural. We're really an international city. A lot of different influences come together. Um, you know, from all the trade that's happened historically through the city. Uh, and you can kind of go out wearing pretty much what you want to wear and not raise too many eyebrows. So I think <laughs> London's also always had this uh, slightly rebellious um, attitude, which is something that I really love. So even though that might not be me you know, now as an older person, but I still love how London accepts and celebrates these kind of really, um, you know, alternative and, and revolutionary styles. And I think one of the fabulous assets that we have in London is that we have a lot of, um, you know, fashion history and culture through museums, like the Victorian Albert Museum, for example. And so I think having access to that sort of history and seeing, you know, garments from the past masters, um, you know, up close is just fabulous. And so, a lot of fashion is, you know, is on the street. I used to love street markets, vintage shopping, that kind of thing. And a few years ago, um, when Valentino was giving a talk, he talked about London as being the capital of the world. And I think certainly, you know, it has a lot going for it in terms of those kind of cultural, historical, artistic and, and fashion ideas all, all coming together. And again, one of the great things that we have in London is fabulous fashion schools. So, it, you know, we have a great you know, population of, of fashion students, which is a course where lots of the exciting and, and latest ideas come from so there's definitely plenty um plenty going from london as a creative sort of city but equally the other you know areas like hong kong is a, a fabulous city and a really different sort of pace of life there so when i moved to hong kong first one of the things you know when you're a maker you go and absorb you always go to the areas where you can find fabric and trimmings. And I remember going up to Sham Shui Po, which is an area in Hong Kong where they had the fabric wholesalers and the button stores. And, and it was just like absolute heaven because you've got you know stores and stores, you know, stacked floor to ceiling of, of ribbons and trims and fabrics. So it's just so amazing to have that kind of experience there. And also to be near, I guess, a lot of, you know, makers. A lot of people started businesses when I was in Hong Kong. It's kind of easy to get things done and get things started. It had a different kind of energy. And that kind of, um, I suppose, the East-West exchange as well. You know, like I was talking about the interest in the sort of tailoring and that kind of aspect and, and seeing those sorts of things. Another great city that, that I've enjoyed visiting is Shanghai. And I've also done a lot of research about fashion history in Shanghai because similar to London, it's somewhere that's had this sort of um, international exchange in the past um, and is really, you know, is a kind of iconic fashion city in the East. And so I was really interested in, in, in looking at, um, you know, how fashion cities emerge their continued story. And so, you know, I'm, I'm often interested in the kind of conversations between the past and, and the present. So I've been lucky enough to go to Shanghai Fashion Week as well, for example, mm -hmm. which is like a really interesting um, experiencing fashion. And again, actually attending a sustainability um, summit in Shanghai and, and thinking about all the ways in which we can make the fashion industry more sustainable. Yes, and all of those kind of artistic influences, cultural influences that come into play, such beauty. I mean, that's what I was most impressed with is how absolutely beautiful the artistry and the workmanship is, you know, both past and present 
There is so much uh, that we have yet to talk about, but we are going to take a quick little break here, and we shall be right back with Natasha. This is Heartstock. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Welcome back. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. And today we are speaking with Natasha Radcliffe Thomas of the British School of Fashion. Hi, Natasha. Hi. <laughs> you know, I'm hoping that you can kind of talk a little bit, uh, first of all, about any type of renaissance that you may be having in the United Kingdom. We were talking previously about uh, Dana Thomas and her work in Fashionopolis. She talks an awful lot about all over the globe makers who are revitalizing local, local makership, so to speak. Is this happening there more and more? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's one of the things I'm very passionate and, and interested in. And I think you know, the UK used to be you know, obviously the factory of the world many um, <laughs> centuries ago. Um, and then, of course, we lost a lot of that production capacity. But what we're seeing now is a lot of younger people being really interested in reviving um, crafts and skills. There's a big renaissance and interest in making. So we're seeing sort of sm- a lot of small businesses starting up and a lot of those businesses are sustainable focused. So I think that's one thing. We've got a lot of young people who are kind of really entrepreneurial and just starting and founding their own businesses. And we've also got people working regionally to revive um, local industry that kind of had um, died away a bit. So there's an interesting company called Hewitt Denim, and they're based in the west of Wales, which used to be a big centre for for denim, you know, for making jeans. And then that sort of industry died down, and they decided to revive it, um, but w- by having a really sustainable and ethical denim brand, and they've managed to do that. So I think we're seeing little pockets of that around the country, and people are very interested as well in in that. I think in the stories about locally made um, garments. So it's definitely something that's a really sort of key trend uh, in the UK, absolutely. And I would imagine all your work focusing on case studies has revealed some some great success stories. Are there any that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, I mean, I think, as I said, some of the case studies that I've been writing are around people like Stella McCartney and Patagonia. And I think one of the things that we see you know, something like Patagonia is probably familiar to all of your listeners. Some of the initiatives that they started were now seeing taken up by a lot of different brands. So things that seemed really revolutionary a few years ago, um, like saying, you know, don't buy this jacket if you remember their big, you know, key campaign. But that idea of actually buying less but buying better, that kind of philosophy, really you can see started with someone like Patagonia. Also things like repairing your clothes. And we're now seeing that sort of um, aspect going across the fashion industry. So that's a really sort of 
interesting um, case in point. Someone like Stella McCartney, I'm not sure if, if everyone would be aware, but she's a staunch sort of vegetarian. So she made a real um, big statement in her business right from the offset to say that she wouldn't use animal uh, skins. So she doesn't use leather. She doesn't use fur. And that for a, a luxury brand, when you think lots of luxury brands make their money out of handbags, is quite an interesting position to take. But that sort of idea of vegan fashion, again, is now becoming more and more you know, popular and becoming quite mainstream. Um, one of the things that she developed as well when she was working um, as part of the Caring Luxury Group was to, to work out a sort of environmental profit and loss so that you could look at a business and not just look at the sort of cash in, cash out, but actually try to measure what's the impact of you know the choices that you make, for example, with materials. And by doing that, they discovered that cashmere, using sort of virgin new cashmere yarn, was extremely um, you know, negatively impactful on the environment. So one of the initiatives they then developed was to work with recycled cashmere. Um, and so, again, these sorts of ideas about recycling fibers, about uh, making products for longevity, uh, about actually resisting mass consumption are some of the kind of interesting concepts that come about through, you know, an analysis of a business and writing a case study about them. But a really interesting business that um, I came upon a couple of years ago is called Tengri. And they actually, uh, linking to the cashmere story, they um, the founder Nancy developed a fiber that she calls yakshmere, <laughs> which is an alternative to cashmere. And it's made out of yak fiber. Now, that's a fascinating story because Nancy um, was a social worker. She's from the States and she was traveling in Mongolia and actually spent time with Mongolian herders, um, was very touched by their lifestyle. Really, you know, they're so in tune with nature um, and that nomadic lifestyle, but but observed that it was really under threat and that people were living in, in really, you know, below the poverty line conditions. So she actually founded a social enterprise, Tengri, to develop the industry around Yakshmir to bring this fiber to the market through luxury products. And she's founded a menswear label out of London. She's based in London now, but also connecting Mongolian herders with factories, you know, with mills and skilled historical uh, mills in the UK and helped sort of revive that as we were talking about the Renaissance. So working with these, you know, mills that are hundreds of years old to develop this real luxury product that one example of which is she would sell through tailors on Savile Row, again, a very um, historical seat of, of the fashion business in London. So that's really, and I think, that whole piece around Tengri, the whole story of, of discovering and developing this fiber and using it to connect people in different parts of the world and to create this beautiful kind of these beautiful products in a socially responsible way has been one of the really interesting stories that I've you know uncovered through my research. Yes. And you know, I'm also always fascinated in by the consumer and the demand side of things, which seems to be kind of happening uh, in step with makers being inspired to be sustainable and social. When you see new students coming in uh, to your classes, what kind of changes are you seeing in their perspective and their demand for being educated? That's a great question. 
We've been involved with an organization called Students Organizing for Sustainability. And one of the things that they do is survey students around their kind of attitudes uh, to sustainability. So I know not just for our students, but I know, you know, nationally and internationally, an increasing number of students year on year are, are kind of demanding that they learn more about sustainability. But I would say from my personal perspective, I noticed probably five or six years ago that students were really, even if they couldn't vocalize it as sustainability, they were becoming more interested in social causes or in environmental causes, which, as I say, in the, you know, in the distant past, that wasn't really a big conversation. I developed a few years ago um, an elective class in sustainable fashion, and it had a very small kind of enrollment. But then year on year, that grew and grew. And now that's, I would say, the number one, the top priority for fashion students. But what we find at the British School of Fashion is uh, people are coming in with a desire and some knowledge, and some of the students actually bring a lot of experience. They're involved with organizations like Fashion Revolution already, but they want to know how to translate that into um, you know, meaningful actions for the industry and for themselves. And I think you know, one of the things we've seen developing over the last few years is careers in sustainability. And as you rightly say, you know, understanding consumer behavior and understanding how to then connect with what's um, you know, the ethical and sustainable consumer wants. How do, you know, what are the types of products? How do people want to be communicated to about those? And also developing um, better systems because fashion is a big industry and a lot of the, the issues are systemic issues. So we don't want to just be sort of tiptoeing around the out, you know, the outside of, of these things. We want to dive in and, and to be thinking about these kind of alternative business models, different ways of doing work. So I think it's absolutely a passion of um, you know, the students that we see coming in. And I'm really inspired by how they adapt and take up you know, these interests. One of the things that we do is uh, we have a class around World Values Day and the students identify the, the values that resonate most with them personally. And then think about how you can apply that into a kind of sustainable business um, kind of concept. So I think that sort of thing as well. I'm really interested in how people can live and work their own personal values and, and bring that um, you know, to the fore in an academic context. So it's not just you know, facts and figures and that kind of thing. It's really engaging as a whole person, thinking about your own position and decisions as an individual, but also as part of the sort of fashion system. So you know, there's a lot going on there, but there's definitely a demand for it. And students are responding really creatively to these challenges. Mm -hmm. Yes. And we've got about two minutes left here. What lays ahead for the future and how might folks find you, Natasha, if they want to reach out or continue the conversation? Absolutely. Well, I'm delighted to continue the conversation. I'm on Twitter and on Instagram as Fashion Natasha. Um, and I'm on LinkedIn as Natasha Redcliffe Thomas. I'm based at the British School of Fashion, which is in London. So I'm happy you know, to hear from anyone in a variety of ways. I'm always happy to support students with their research as well. I think the future is looking really positive as much as, you know, today, um, you know, we've got so many challenges in there, but I think there's really an appetite not just from students and academics, but actually from the wider public to really engage with some of these challenges. And I really hope that by people connecting in their own individual ways and challenging our governments and, and businesses to do better, that, you know, that we do have a really positive future for fashion. 
Yes, there's a lot of empowerment, what I hear in your message, that, you know, all players do in fact hold the key to solving some of these issues. Absolutely. Uh, yes, I love your positivity. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I I feel the same way. And um, as usual, this is Heartstock. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Thank you, Natasha, for sharing your story with myself and and our listeners. Thank you. It's been my absolute pleasure. Mm -hmm. We shall see you next week. Peace. Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org. No